You're listening to Cortez Radio, CKTZ, 89.5 FM. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents, which you can also listen to on the web at cortezcurrents.ca. A new UBC study suggests the blob of warmer ocean temperatures, which stretched over 3,200 kilometers off the coast of North America, at its peak during 2014 and 2015, may have temporarily dampened the Pacific Ocean's biological pump. Other people had noticed a change in the primary producers by looking at things like the pigments and, and, and other indicators for those organisms previously. So there was a, a clue, maybe, that would point to potential effects on the organisms that are actually utilizing the carbon from those primary producers. But there had been no direct measurements of, of that effect. And so that's where we came in. And we profiled the water column from the surface all the way down 4,000 meters near the seafloor uh, over that period of time from 2010 to 2016, three times a year for that duration at the same location. Said Dr. Stephen Hallam, a microbiologist at the University of British Columbia. He and Dr. Colleen Kellogg, a research scientist with the Hakai Institute, were in the team that studied seven years of DNA sequencing and other data from the open sea buoy known as Ocean Station Papa, 1,400 kilometers off the coast. Their findings were published in Nature Communications Biology last week. We were able to look at what I'm calling the prokaryotic microorganisms, bacteria and archaea, that inhabit the water at those different depths. And so in terms of what we saw is that indeed there were changes in the community of prokaryotic microorganisms. And then we related those changes in the community to the, the phytoplankton, the composition of organic matter that was present. And we tried to relate the changes we observed in microbial community structure to a model of what might be happening to that biological pump. That's effectively the arc of the story. In the first couple years of the blob, there was a big decline in phytoplankton biomass, which I think would have an influence on how much carbon dioxide the ocean is sucking in. But then in the last year, all of a sudden they were growing again and, or there was like more phytoplankton, but it was just kind of different types. And it's like, it recovered, but in a bit of a different way. It's hard to say with the measurements that we made, but we can make predictions that, that there definitely are influences and some others have measured that like during one of the seasons of the blob, the ocean and around there potentially, there was more respiration than production, meaning it could be like a source of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for a brief period in time, right? And normally it's a sink. Explained co-author, Dr. Colleen Kellogg. We always have a hard time communicating these types of findings to the public. In the case of the blob, we thought it would be interesting because of the name and the, the fact that it's attractive in some ways. It's, it's people go, what? They stop. They go, what is that? That's an interesting uh, blob. You know, I want to learn more. Uh, so it's a point of entry. But really, what I want to emphasize is that a lot of the things that we're trying to understand that we, we can't give a short term explanation. These are long term patterns, long term processes. And so in order for us to to really be able to give with more certainty or confidence answers to the questions, we need to be able to continue to observe 
and we need to do so over long periods of time. We're talking about generational science in effect. And the real challenge here is how do you balance out the need for generational science with the fact that there are real problems that we have to address right now? And therefore people want the answer because they wanna make good decisions. And that's, we're right at that point, that, that inflection point, not just because of the study, but in, in, you know, because of the way human beings exist in the world today. Like it's an interesting and on one hand exciting, but also you know, terrifying dilemma to be in where we need to make real choices real soon. And we don't necessarily know the best choices to make. But I can tell you one thing that we know that we have to get less carbon into the atmosphere. We know that. That's a given, and we need to do it aggressively. And studies like the blob help remind us of the fact that we can't continue to behave the way we're behaving in terms of our carbon emissions without having potentially real impacts on what we call ecosystem services that are just provided by nature. We've reached a point where we can't just rely on nature anymore to take the waste and deal with it. We have to make conscious choices. And that's, I think, again, the, the essence of this paper is how do we do that? How do, like, we need information. We need long-term observations to make the best choices. We were specifically looking at how microbes, the invisible majority of life, respond to this marine heat wave. And people have done laboratory experiments or mesocosm where they've, they've set up conditions and tried to evaluate the effect of increasing temperature. But having the ability to go in through a time series lens and effectively watch nature respond, because we have monitoring programs in place through the line key transect, this is a you know, DFO funded ship time that goes out three times a year from the Institute of Ocean Sciences in Saanich. And that's been going for decades. And so we're able to essentially link to that uh, infrastructure and, and that ongoing campaign, and then go out there and take samples and take measurements. And we weren't expecting a particular event. We were simply monitoring the, you could say the earth system in this region. And, and then that temperature anomaly happened and we were essentially prepared because we'd been sampling before and during uh, all the way through the peak and then the diminishment of that anomaly that affected the surface waters. And it just happened that, that almost the center of that anomaly was in the location that we were taking samples from. And so we were in a good position to ask questions now and say, well, we have the, the standard temperature uh, profile and we know what kinds of microorganisms are there during the, 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 the typical seasonal cycles that happen. You can imagine that things heat up in the summer and they cool down in the winter, and that has an effect on the types of microorganisms that might be present, at least in the surface waters. But now we have these changes in the temperature of four degrees or so, which is significant. And we can ask, okay, what happens? Do the same types of microorganisms uh, persist? The new types of microorganisms appear? And if the latter, if new types of microorganisms appear, what types of microorganisms are they? Do we know anything about how they make a living, the kinds of processes they're involved in? 
And can we combine that knowledge with other measurements that people have been taking along the line P transect at that specific location? Uh, and then in a way, put together a, a model for what might be happening. And, and our focus was on carbon and, and the flow of, of carbon, because of course the ocean, you start with these primary producers in the surface ocean that use sunlight. They build themselves up using sunlight and CO2. This is the phytoplankton. As they grow though, they're providing food for other organisms. And so we often think about the food web going upwards to these apex organisms at the tip. But actually there's this deeper layer, which is the microbial component of the food web. The microbes are recycling that carbon, they're using it. And there's a balance because the carbon that's produced in the ocean, if it all just stays cycling, if things eat each other and they keep going around in a circle, you have the carbon kind of trapped in a biological loop. What actually happens in the ocean is a certain amount of that carbon winds up getting transported to the deep ocean and it's sequestered in the deep ocean. And that helps remove CO2 from the atmosphere. So that's a, that's a biological pumping mechanism. The biomass sinks, the carbon is transported to depth. And again, going back to the microbes, they're the invisible engines that are making all of this work. They're the ones that are through their biological processes and interactions that are effectively keeping the cycles moving correctly. And so up until this particular study, there really hasn't been, to, to our knowledge, the opportunity to look at scale on the, the impact of a large temperature anomaly on, on how the microbial community acts. After we profiled the whole water column, we tried to see if there were any major changes uh, at depth, and there, there weren't. Most of the, the changes were happening in the first few hundred meters. So we focused our attention on that, and, and that's where the, the, the temperature uh, impacts were. So we don't have any direct information to relate the changes we saw to, say, fish or marine mammals or anything like that in the open ocean. And of course, we didn't have an equivalent study on the coast. I mean, that, that the effects that people saw during the heat wave, we didn't have a comparable study measuring the microbial community in the Strait of Georgia, for example. We are now carrying out similar time series locally, so not very far off the coast, but since 2013 off of Calvert and since 2014 off of Quadra. And so soon, hopefully I'll be able to kind of report back to you and others locally about kind of like what really is happening right around us and right around our waters. Because now we have those data and I just need to sit down and <laughs> find the time to look at them. But I think like we definitely see interesting changes in the phytoplankton. One thing I've found super interesting about our local waters is the phytoplankton in the Northern Strait of Georgia. So off of Quadra are often just like really small small guys not we don't we have a couple of times where we have like these big diatom blooms but then other than that there's a lot of really small phytoplankton out there and this is like the last place that juvenile salmon are swimming through before they head out to sea right and it's interesting like why why is it so small and what does does that have a big impact and so there's lots of things that we're trying to figure out and the time series that we're seeing we can see these changes and see how some years you'll have more big guys and some years you'll have more small guys and so anyway those sort of more local studies are coming if you want to distill the paper down it's like we went out and we studied nature and on a recurring basis and we saw something that no one had seen before and we think that's important 
because it could have a big effect on things like how much carbon the ocean can absorb. Do we know if it's going to do that? We do not, because we still have to disentangle our observations from seasonal effects, from things that just happen because it's winter or summer, or things that happen every 10 years, or things that happen because of an El Nino. And so there, there are so many confounding variables, but we see a signal, there's a signal there, and we wanna follow it. And so the paper is an expression of that. Yeah, and I think like the, the direct linkages between higher trophic levels, like, fish um though like the impacts on those populations were probably more driven by temperature changes in the like the surface ocean or food availability which was ultimately influenced by the microbes in the sea right like if fish weren't getting the food that they were needing that's probably because the zooplankton that they normally eat weren't quite the right ones or they weren't there or they weren't as nutritious because of they were smaller zooplankton, didn't have as many lipids or something. And then those could have been different because the phytoplankton were different. And so the zooplankton weren't having the meals that they wanted either, right? Which influenced their health and their ability to feed higher trophic levels. And so when you shift the phytoplankton, you shift the zooplankton potentially. Um, but then there's still work that needs to be done to disentangle like, yeah, like was this community like trophic cascade, was this a result of the warming or was it a result of the community shift because the nutrients kind of fell off like we didn't have ocean mixing so there wasn't renewal of nutrients for phytoplankton and so like the big guys that need a lot of nutrients they didn't bloom in the spring during the first couple years of the blob because they just didn't have the nutrients there that they needed and so that then influences like the zooplankton and the fish and everything else and then where the bacteria and stuff come in is they are the ones that kind of chew up all the stuff that's left over after fish have eaten the zooplankton, zooplankton have eaten the phytoplankton. They're breaking this all down. They're recycling it. They're like helping kind of keep the system healthy. And so if you change who's there, if they can't do their recycling job as well, or if you have kind of different recyclers around, like it just basically it's we were kind of watching the system like swing and then adapt. And we don't know ultimately yet what that impact had because we're still kind of measuring that and you need to work together with lots of different scientists that measure lots of different components. I think it was interesting to be able to detect a change in very abundant organisms in the ocean. And then to now think about ways that like more things that we need to do with data that we need to look at in order to see like how much that change stuck around, how much it really influenced the ocean's ability to suck up carbon dioxide. And now that we're starting to see those cold water taxa are back now, right? Like there's been a, more little heat waves here and there. And then that influences things too. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Stephen Hallam and Colleen Kellogg about the impacts that warmer ocean waters have at the microbial level.